0: Hey Yasmin, welcome to part 2 of Women and Cities. Yasmin, did you know that women still do an average of 3 times more of the unpaid care work a day compared to men? That's mental. I know there are arguments saying that things
1: are getting better and at an individual level, sure, but at a population level, it's much more complicated. It really shows how important it is to have the numbers and data to understand
0: the gender gap. That's right, which is why we'll be speaking to Chris Chong, who brings in empirical data to understand the magnitude of unpaid care work in Malaysia, and how it has impacted our women's potential of participating in the economy, and um, how this also affects our cities. Totally, and COVID has really
1: shown light on how essential and undervalued unpaid care work is. A bit about Chris... He has extensive experience in policymaking, having worked at the UNDP and more recently as Deputy Director of Research in Kazana Research Institute. And currently, he is an Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity at the London School of Economics. Hi, Chris. So lovely to have you on the show. Welcome to Resilient Together. So, one of the main reasons that we reached out to you is because we wanted to talk about the report that was released by Kazana Research Institute in 2019. Um, of understanding unpaid care work in Asia, so when we talk about gender responsive cities, which is the topic for this podcast, um, care work is really wrapped up in it. We can't avoid talking about it. Um, the more of that we've learned, um, women invariably still do most of the care work. Um, I think seventy-five percent of the global care work is done by women, and women meaning women navigate and travel in the city in a different ways than men. And because pay work is still valued more, that dictates the design and the outcome of cities.
0: Yeah, and um, we really do underestimate the hidden costs of care. So we are very excited to hear about this research and how we can radically rethink the equity policies. So what was the motivation to produce this report? Can you explain a little bit to us, um, to our listeners out there, about how the time-used survey was used to measure the unpaid work?
2: Right. Uh, yeah. So first of all, hi, hi, Yasmin and hi, Leah. Uh, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. Um, yeah. It's also interesting question uh, on, on, on time use and the use of that to measure unpaid care work. Uh, and then when I think about this right now, uh, actually quite interesting to link it back to cities because when we first formulated the research project, we actually were thinking about what we call the invisible pillars of a productive city because we felt that a lot of the discussions around what contribute to city making uh, focuses a lot on the the more visible aspects of city making. So we talk about things like skills and talents, um, physical infrastructure and planning, uh, geographical location, um, you know, and all those things, but less uh, attention was given to the, what I would think the less visible aspects of uh, city making. So I think uh, we felt that at that time, we wanted to zoom into one aspect of the invisible pillar, which is on uh, unpaid care work. And I think that's because the team back then wanted to look at the relationship between gender inequality and unpaid care work. Um, And we were quite aware back then that there was a study done by the Ministry of Women, Family and Community Development, or KPWKM, Department of Statistics, DOS, uh, where they did a kajian penggunaan master, and I think that's way back in 2003 where they use the report as an input to the national women's policy and the national women's action plan. And as far as I know, until today, that is the only large scale um, nationally representative time use survey that we have in Malaysia. So so we basically look a bit deeper into the time use method. uh, And then we found out that actually globally, uh, this method has been used to study some very fascinating things. Uh, Of course, one of them is unpaid care work because you can basically classify uh, different activities that are done using time, whether this is ledger, uh, whether this is uh, social networking, whether this is uh, unpaid care work, domestic labour and so on. Right. This is actually linked to what is called the system of national accounts, uh, which is basically the set of systems that we use to derive our GDP Uh, So, so I personally felt that if we were to um, do this and if we can get the Department of Statistics to be interested, you know, to do this at the national level and on a regular basis, then we can actually construct a set of national accounts that also encompass a broader understanding of the economy, which I think can include care in a more systematic way, you know, in terms of how we understand some of these things.
1: That's so powerful. The the, I think going back to data, I think that's always the thing that's lacking. We can't talk about it without the right numbers. We we can't visualize it without the right numbers. Has just going back to the 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 time you survey, has it, is it something that's continuous? Because I know it was just kind of a smaller sample that you guys did. Um, has it expanded from from 2019, and then with COVID recently, kind of shining a really bright light on this issue of care, or uh, care work, unpaid care work.
2: Yeah, so I think we, we actually did a very small sample and it's important to caveat that. So in many ways, and ours is a, a sample that is located in Kuala Lumpur. So it's definitely not nationally representative, uh, but I think strategically, we wanted to to do that to show the potential of what we can do with time use statistics. Uh, but I think that uh, the role of, uh, incorporating this in the national statistical system is something that the Department of Statistics may need to consider. So there, there, there are ways around some of these things, I think. But I think, uh, as far as I know, uh, there were some conversations around this uh, when we launched the report in 2019, but because then now we are in the pandemic and all that, I think the priorities have shifted, as far as I know.
1: Yeah, I guess it's a cross uh, ministerial thing trying to get more sex disaggregated data in, in many different ways. Um, So that's really, really interesting. That's something that's ongoing that that will hopefully expand. Um, I wanted to talk about a little bit more about the the double burden by women since we're talking about women in cities. I mean, essentially, we're talking about how, you know, as we're moving towards an aging population and a higher demand for uh, childcare is increasing and more women being employed. I mean, we wanted to ask you your thoughts on the effect of not addressing unpaid work um, on society, the economy and, and the city.
2: Right. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. And, and I want to say that uh, at, at the start, that I think that is this dominant framing of gender inequality and unpaid care work um, in, in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Uh, very much centered around the idea that we need to get women to, to work, uh, to enter the labor market. Uh, And and we have official targets. Uh, I mean, the government sets targets on the female labor force participation rates in our five-year development plans. Um, And I think uh, within this framing, uh, care work is uh, constructed as a kind of obstacle or challenge that needs to be overcome for women to to enter the labor market. Uh, and, And I have some problems with this framing because I feel that Uh, One is that, of course, it recognizes only one form of work as work, uh, which is basically work that takes place in the market. Uh, It it is paid. uh, There's some kind of a transaction to it. And therefore, this is real work. Uh, But uh, I think on the flip side, what it implies is that uh, unpaid care work is actually not real work uh, because it is not paid. uh, There's no transaction to it because it takes place within the households, you know, amongst uh, household members and, and so on. And I, and I think this creates some kind of a vicious cycle because unpaid care work will therefore remain unpaid because you don't see it as work. Uh, and it is also not work because we have already defined or constructed work as something that needs to be paid. And I think this is a subtler and a systematic way of devaluing unpaid care work uh, and keeps it invisible and hidden um, because uh, although actually it contributes in such significant way to the economy, it subsidizes the, some of these productive activities because it is not paid, you know. Um, but it is not recognized in that sense. So I think that the challenge, if we want to think about the relationship between the economy and unpaid care work under neoliberal capitalism, and this is definitely not specific to Malaysia, but I think it's happening globally, is that we see this increasing trend of the feminization of labor or the feminization of work where we are encouraging more women to join the workforce. And and I think this will put pressure on the family model in the country, which is, uh, I think what is aspired is what is known as the dual earner family model. That means we want both men and women to work. Mm -hmm. I think in the male breadwinner model, the, the idea is that men will go out to work and women will reproduce the male worker through care and domestic labor. But the question is when society and the economy demands or compels both men and women to enter the workforce, the question is who is going to do the reproduction of the male worker and the female worker? I think this this will be a challenging question because the structure of the economy is changing. Uh, And I would say that if we don't do anything to to reconfigure our care work uh, deal with this new reality i think we will increasingly see a more and more unequal care economy where i think those who can afford care they will buy these care services or domestic services from the market that means they can pay for child care you pay for elder care you pay for cleaning services
1: source everything
2: source them yeah but i have a sense that the majority of the malaysian households may not fall into this category And they would then have to rely on some kind of informal arrangements um, between households. And I think from extended family members or from the communities that they live with. Uh, And in many ways, I think the the informal space as well as some of these care sectors, I would think that they are also highly feminized. Uh, That means women constitute the majority of these uh, workers. Uh, So I think we are facing some kind of a care crisis where... Your workers are stressed because they have to face the double burden, you know, dealing with care and work. Your care providers are overworked, but they're under remunerated. And people who require care, whether it's your elderly or your children or people with disabilities, I think if they cannot afford to pay for some of these things, uh, they, they are also left in dire straits. And so I think the question is bigger than that because it's about the, the ability of our economy and our society to reproduce itself when the whole social reproduction system is put under such an increasing strain.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a very loaded kind of answer. A lot of things to pick from there. I think from what you're saying, that the, the group that is most disadvantaged really is that the future generation in a way, or, or those that need care, the elderly, you know, disabled groups. Um, and so it's really unfair and we're, we're really impacting our future generation, our future production GDP, I think it'll be interesting to see where we where we go from here. But I think we have to take it one step at a time as well. Just like going back to outsourcing care and how, you know, it's, it's also what you can afford, right? Not, not everyone can afford the best care or, or what is considered the best care. How do we make uh, care regulated and affordable and, and high quality? Um, I think that's also something that we need to, to talk about because in theory, these things is very different than in practice.
2: Yeah, yeah. I would say that actually even uh, if we don't consider what is happening within the households, and that's why I think the time use survey is important, we wouldn't be able to capture the full cost and trade-off involved, you know, when we talk about getting women to join the workforce. Uh, Because it means that some of the household production, whether it's cooking and all that, I mean, it's actually a form of absorbing the, the cost of living. But the moment you need to work, that means you need to rely on some other people to do it and there will be a cost involved. And so the full trade-off needs to be considered. And I think some of the constraint in terms of why like, the government is not able to increase the female labor force participation further, I think to me has got to do with the perhaps you know the constraint understanding of what's happening uh, when, when some of these decisions are facing households. And I, I would argue that the time use will enable us to get at that kind of intra-household dynamics better.
1: Because it puts value, I mean, it puts value in the work. The hours, you know, it kind of calculates how much time and energy and sweat is put into this unpaid or undervalued, very much undervalued work.
0: So Chris, um, as a parent, uh, where do you see biases in our cities when it comes to care work? As a parent, have you faced any obstacles in terms of accessibility to services?
2: Yeah, I, I, uh, it's a, it's a good question. I need to reflect on this uh, uh, as well. I, I, I think. In terms of Malaysian cities, I must say that my experience is very much confined to the Klang Valley and I think it's important to make that disclaimer because I think when we talk about Malaysian cities, I think the Klang Valley experience is actually quite different from some other Malaysian cities. At least when it comes to care work, I feel that the intensity and the scale of the care issues uh, might actually vary. Um, and I think for me, based on the Klang Valley experience, um, I would say that my, my, my challenge when it comes to accessibility perhaps has got to do less with the physical distance you know, to care centres and all that, but has got to do with the multiple trip segments that we need to plan uh, for my son um, because of the time gaps between uh, schooling hours, uh, childcare hours and also work hours. Um, so for example, in, in my case, we have to plan to send my son from our house to the school and then from the school to the childcare center, from the childcare center back to the house. And of course, in each of these points, we have to also think about how to get to our workplaces you know, and, and all that. Um, so I would say that, the, that even with flexible working hours, uh, I think with the traffic jams and with the distance, uh, it's actually quite hard to pull this off without a car and without actually uh, outsourcing some of the trip segments to a third party, which means you will incur additional costs. Uh, and so I think reflecting this and, and then the question of bias in our city, uh, and I remember actually the, the town planning department has uh, a guideline that says like for every 200 households, there must be one task that is located within a certain radius uh, from it. Um, but I think in our time to care report, we actually found quite interestingly that actually a lot of households do not send their children to the nearest TASCA from where they live. So we were quite surprised as well. And then we were like, maybe they send to the car that's nearest to where they work. But that's also not true. So it's located somewhere in between. Uh, we didn't probe deeper into the reasons why. But I think there was one respondent who said something to the effect that uh, it is because of... Uh, they needed to get their in-laws or extended family members or parents, grandparents to help to pick up the child from the car because they couldn't rush back in time from their work. So I think when I think about like the city and uh, city making or urban planning, um, we, we tend to think about a physical space that's bounded by some kind of administrative boundaries. And that's how we do planning. But there's also this social space that's very much configured by uh, care needs where you need to rely on communities that may that may be located outside of your administrative boundaries, and I would think that your this kind of social space will, will sort of add additional complexities to how planning is done. and And I would locate the question of bias. I think within this understanding or lack of understanding of the social space, and and I think the construction of this social space itself is a very very jetted process. So we find that using time use survey, uh, women tend to do the more homebound uh, care activities. So things like uh, cooking, cleaning, uh, taking care of the child, like bathing the child, feeding the child. But men tend to do, uh, you can consider that as a less homebound activities because they tend to manage the household budget. They tend to do transporting for care. That means they will send the kids to school. They will uh, accompany the the spouse to do uh, groceries. Uh, and then we see the kind of gendered patterns of travel uh, where men, again, I mean, the disclaimer is that our sample is quite small, so it's not representative, uh, but men tends to travel further from their homes uh, and they tend to make more trips, whereas women tends to travel closer to the home and they make uh, fewer trips. And so I'm wondering whether the kind of um, gendered patterns of travel that we see is related to the nature of the care task that is performed, you know, the gender division of labor that great between household members Um, and also in terms of the mode of transportation we also found that actually men rely more on cars uh, whereas Mm -hmm. women they use more public transportation they walk more even when they use cars they will use cars more as a passenger rather than as a driver so that when I think about this and the question of like some of the planning questions about how do we locate where do we locate uh, childcare centers or any care centers, for example? Do we plan this along uh, bus routes or train routes or pedestrian routes or cars? You know, and I think each of these choice is a gendered choice. You know, because of the gendered patterns that we see. Or if we think about distance as a principle of planning, do we think in terms of actual distance that's travel, where you know th- that comes with perceptions of safety, security, and comfort? Uh, again, and and these are all very gendered processes as well.
1: Yeah, I think it's like a a global kind of shift, though, to understand just how gendered everything is. And without the data to understand that, we we're not going to address these gender biases. Um, but it's really fascinating what you're talking about the essentially trip chaining that you said a few times now where you do several trips in KL because initially I thought oh that's interesting because usually women do more trip chaining globally it's been proven that women do more trip they drop their kids off etc they go to the market etc etc but perhaps because in Kuala Lumpur it's just a theory but you know we we are so dependent on our car that it that it also shifts that whole social space you were talking about that you know, how we do care work is also impacted by the fact that majority of, I mean, again, not all groups, but majority in the in Kuala Lumpur, perhaps that you studied, have cars. So that's, yeah, so that's really fascinating. I think how every city would be very different. So you can't really contextualize something that's happening in, in anywhere in Europe, and then compare it to Kuala Lumpur, and, and how you were talking about the genderedness of social space, and how, you know, everything's planned. I'm curious to explore further, you know, how how many women were involved in decision-making of these things, how much participation was involved in that at all stages of the decision-making. And would that kind of change things or are we almost, are we at the stage of like too late to change? You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, I'm curious to see how do we, how do we start talking about this in a way that's effective?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think, and, and, and when we talk about like planning uh, and how to incorporate the different voices. Uh, I think that's definitely the, the gender dimension. But I would say that we also need to think in terms of like intersectional um, dimensions as well because a lot of the times when we think about gender, but we also need to think about the, like the class dimension to things um, because your more affluent women and your you know poorer women would have different modes of travel as well. And the kind of voices that are captured in the planning process, uh, whether it's through participatory methods or budgeting and all that, yeah, I, I think a lot of times it might centre some of these more vocal voices and I think it's important to keep in mind some of these things as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think we just have one last question. Leah, um, would you like to take the last question?
0: Yeah, Um. finally, to influence equality in our urban centres, what care policies and actions do you suggest uh, we should start implementing now? For example, the shared responsibilities, access to daycare, Women representation and support women going back to work, but and as well as paternity leave.
2: Uh, yeah, I may not be able to comment specifically on urban planning itself. But I think I can talk about it more generally. Uh, and I think first of all, I would think that we need to decommodify um. Uh, care work uh, in a much larger way than it is now. And and when I say that, what I mean is that the way we organise care and the way we pay for care work cannot be based on the principles of profit nor productivity because I think these two principles are very problematic when it comes to care work. I won't go into the details why I think that warrants a whole separate discussion. Uh, but I think what it means is that the government has to come in to fund care work through the fiscal system in a much more systematic uh, and extensive way. And I think in a way, uh, I would say that we have the infrastructure for this. The Jabatan Kebajikan or you know, our Department of Welfare uh, actually has the kind of welfare payments to the different groups. Uh, but I, as I say, I think if the economy is changing and you know the the structure is changing, and we want to get both men and women to work, I would think that the question of um, who is going to bear the cost of care cannot be subsidized fully by the households anymore. And when we talk about households, basically, a lot of times we're talking about women. Uh, but but I think the government and the private sector have to step in to share in the cost of care, and and. I think that that has to be be the case uh, moving forward. Uh, But I must also say that I'm not saying that we should fully outsource um, care responsibilities to the government or to the state. I think this is where I think I also see a role for community community care work. Um, I mean, coming back to the whole discussion about participation and and all that, um, if you look at the, the large segment of informal care that we have in Malaysia right now, in a way, it is telling us that uh, the community is already planning their own care solutions you know, to their own care problems. With or without government help, they are already doing it. But just that it is done under very stressful conditions, under resource constraints, uh, is through informal arrangements where the providers don't have any forms of social protection. And where I see, you know, where the government can come in is to actually provide this kind of support. You know, you come in to organize social protection not around the principles of poverty, but around the principles of social reproduction. Uh, you know, it's an extension of how we think about social protection. Uh, and then you, you come with a whole range of policies, you know, things that will encourage uh, workers to participate in community life. So even things like you mentioned, I think paternity leave, um, things like flexible working hours, you know, things that we should give time you know, for, for, for people to, to be part of the community. And maybe, you know, support with things like, uh, I don't know, community grants or uh, infrastructure support, maintenance of facilities and all that. And I've just been observing some of the discussions on on community care work, what's happening in this space. People talk about things like community kitchens, uh, shed laundries. Um, getting volunteers from the community to do domiciliary care work Uh, I think we have something called home help in JKM but I think there's a way to expand that for a more community centric approach things like respite care that means carers also need to be cared for Um, so you you bring in replacement uh, so that they can take a break Uh, spaces for self care and all that so I think in in some what I'm trying to say is that we, we need to rethink care in a much more like much bolder way uh, to deal with this Uh, but to do so requires not just a rethinking of care but also a rethinking of the economy the society and also the cities that we we, we construct. you know uh, because they're all intertwined and I think this this question will be quite central now and I will say also post post post-pandemic.
1: That was so insightful So much to unpack there We really can't talk about care work Without thinking about the overall economic structures And start to really address the care crisis
0: And how so much more government support is needed Towards social reproduction Totally Chris mentioned social reproduction a few times And it essentially means The activities that nurture future workers Regenerate the current workforce And maintain those who cannot work One key example of this, care work. I also really love his input on community care work, the innovative and um, collaborative way communities have found solutions together. We
1: definitely learned a lot and we will carry these insights forwards in how we look at addressing the unpaid care gap and in planning more caring and gender-responsive cities.